0: Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange Podcast, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. Today's episode is part of our series on doing trade in disruptive times. The sessions were taped on March the 8th, 2022, during the CJAI Annual State of Trade Conference that was held virtually. This podcast series is brought to you by Amazon, the Reisman Chair in International Economic Policy at Carleton University and UPS Canada. This episode is a panel discussion on managing border logistics and supply chains featuring Alan Burson, Lori Troutman, Eileen Lucy, and moderator Brian Kingston.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. Uh, I love the State of Trade Conference. It's uh, one of the best uh, conferences going in terms of talking trade policy, and there's no shortage of issues to unpack here today. So I really appreciate the invitation and good to see everybody. Um, So before I hop into introductions, uh, just a quick overview of what we're planning to cover here um, this morning. So uh, supply chains has perhaps become one of the the words of 2021. Uh, This used to be a term that was generally reserved for folks in the border logistics uh, world. Um, But now, you know, it seems not a day passes where uh, supply chains aren't discussed uh, everywhere from a grocery store to a car dealer's lot or or even in the House of Commons. Um, So uh, we've seen a number of unprecedented events, uh, starting of course with the COVID-19 pandemic which has had an impact on border logistics and supply chains. And since then, it's been a series uh, of events uh, that have caused even more challenges and difficulties in terms of border management and supply chain management, everything from uh, a global semiconductor shortage, which is impacting industries across the world. We've seen extreme weather events, uh, border blockades in Canada quite recently, and now, of course, the the conflict in, in Ukraine. So what we're hoping to explore here this morning is how do governments and businesses navigate this increasingly complex and challenging border and supply chain environment. It doesn't appear as though things are going to be getting any easier in the coming years. So we've got a great series of panelists this morning uh, who are going to unpack this uh, topic. So let me just start with brief introductions. Uh, So we have Eileen Lucy, uh, the VP of Public Affairs at UPS Canada, Lori Troutman, uh, the Director of Border Policy Research Institute at Western Washington University, and Alan Burson, uh, currently the Executive Chairman of Altana AI and the former Commissioner of the US Customs and Border Protection Agency, as well as many, many other very senior roles uh, in the US government, including at uh, Homeland Security and the, the Department of Justice. So I couldn't think of a better group uh, to discuss this issue with us today. Uh, So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna jump right into questions and we'll have a free flowing conversation. So Eileen, I'm gonna start with you. Um, You've got a very interesting perspective on this, uh, given your role at UPS. And I just wanna understand how does UPS ensure supply chain continuity? I outlined some of the issues that we've witnessed over the past couple of years. How have you managed things like Uh, extreme weather and the the flooding in BC. Um, And we'll start with that. And then I got a few more questions, but curious to know how you handle it from a UPS perspective.
2: In terms of ensuring supply chain continuity, well, I would say that that has essentially become my job description uh, over the last two years. Uh, And the same would go for all members of the public affairs team at UPS uh, worldwide. Um, To offer just a bit of context, UPS Of course operates in Canada delivering to every address uh, from coast to coast to coast but we also operate in you know 220 countries and territories worldwide and that's a network that we've had to keep running throughout the last two years. Uh, Brian you mentioned a couple of those um, challenges just I think I have a few more to add to the list so we have of course had the global pandemic uh, extreme weather events certainly uh, that we saw in BC last year Uh, the most recent border disruptions through the protests that took place at multiple border crossings. Uh, But we also had some labor disruptions taking place um, in the context of collective bargaining at the CBSA uh, and even at the Port of Montreal too. And and now of course uh, we're all watching the situation unfold in Ukraine. So all of those, um, all of those events are having impacts on the global supply chain, and when it comes to an organisation like UPS, which is operating, you know, we're we're multimodal. I intentionally picked the background behind me today because I think that we're probably most well known for the brown package cars that do that final mile delivery and get the package to your door. But we are also a global airline. Um, we 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 operate by ocean as well. So every single mode of transportation is something that um, that is is moving within our network. And throughout the last couple of years, I think some of the big shifts and trends that we've seen. Um, well, the first and this this has been mentioned earlier today is, of course, the changing patterns in consumer demand. So an unprecedented um, shift in consumer demand as well as swings in consumer preferences. So I know that everybody's well aware of that shift to e-commerce and individuals buying a lot more online as they've been subject to restrictions. But from the UPS vantage point, we also see some of the changes in the types of commodities uh, that are moving uh, across the border. Uh, The more obvious ones might be uh, PPE, uh, COVID tests, and of course, uh, COVID vaccines as well, which have been moving in our network. Uh, We've delivered over a billion of them around the world so far. Uh, But also things like bread makers, remember remember that time, the time of making bread? Uh, Exercise bikes, of course, and even hair dye. Uh, as as people were were resorting to uh, to do-it-yourself mechanisms at home during during lockdowns, uh, so so that's something that we've had to manage. I, I'd say the second uh, trend that we've seen is certainly just generally global disruption in global aviation and shipping, um, which is also quite well known. I'd say port closures that were related to COVID, as well as uh, shipping container shortages, have certainly Uh, created a lot of pressure points in global shipping uh, having a knock-on impact uh, on supply chains worldwide and then air capacity so global air capacity air cargo capacity was down uh, primarily due to the loss of that belly hold space as we refer to it uh, in commercial in passenger passenger aircraft Uh, when they were not running uh, we also we also lost some of that additional space Um, we did of course still have Uh, Cargo aircraft running, uh, but that didn't come without challenges either, you know, there were different protocols emerging uh, in countries around the world that were impacting the ability of our pilots and crew. uh, To be able to continue to move between between countries without being subject uh, to mandatory isolation or other types of restrictions and then the third, uh, the third challenge is, of course, pandemic induced labor shortages labour shortages, which uh, we see worldwide um, and which are a challenge not only for our industry, uh, but for for many others too. In terms of how we handle it, uh, well certainly on the government relations side, our focus shifted completely to maintaining operational continuity and engaging with government officials at the federal, provincial, uh, municipal levels, you know, regional public health authorities as well. Uh, to To ensure that our every aspect of our operations, you know, not just the final mile delivery, not just the airline, not just the warehouses, but the entire network altogether, because that's what you need uh, to keep running, uh, could continue to do so. Um, we focus on our employee safety uh, within our buildings, but also if you think about extreme weather events or you know some of the recent disruption at the border, making decisions on a daily basis as to whether or not we're going to to send. Um, our employees to certain locations and whether we will continue to operate our network or make adjustments in the shorter term. Uh, Globally, we've been advocating for a common set of rules uh, in terms of essential service definitions, as well as uh, the movement of cargo pilots uh, across the world to enable that, that essential movement of those aircraft. And then in Canada, a lot of our work with, uh, with provinces as they develop some of their essential service lists as well as on the public safety side. Uh, we've worked closely with CBSA on vaccine movement protocols, so you know, ensuring that there is dedicated customs protocol to enable those most essential of deliveries, those COVID-19 vaccines, uh, to, to move unimpeded across Canada's borders and be delivered to where they are needed most. Um, as well as, you know, different CBSA protocol for some of the other disruptions uh, that we've seen, which we might get into a bit later in our conversation. Um, and then on construction, think about the capacity increases that our industry has needed. Uh, we've needed to construct new buildings, and we've been doing so in Canada. Uh, the the pandemic did cause some disruption to construction so that was another area that we found ourselves having to focus on how do we ensure that we can keep that construction moving so that we can uh, flex our network and have that additional capacity at the time that we've needed it so that's just a a kind of whirlwind tour of the last two years of what we've been what we've been seeing and how we've been responding to it
1: excellent thank you and i want to come back to you on a couple of those examples but First, I'm going to uh, bring Lori into the conversation. You mentioned something uh, really interesting related to the movement of people. And, you know, I think one of the, the things, uh, one, of the, one of the positives, if you will, um, throughout the pandemic, we did see goods trade largely moving uh, relatively unimpeded across the Canada-US border, despite all of the challenges. However, where we have seen major challenges and continue to uh, are on the movement of people, company personnel, um, you know, even people taking holidays. Uh, And so my question for you, Lori, and and you know, this is going to get into a bit kind of broader border policy: how do we return to a pre-COVID border where you have both goods moving? But importantly, people moving efficiently, quickly, safely across the border, because we're we're clearly not there yet. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. And I think, you know, we've seen a, a, a real lack of a binational border management policy through this whole, um, particularly through the border blockades. Um, so how, how do we address that? So there's a couple of questions there for you.
3: Thanks, Brian, and good morning, everyone. And you know, as you laid out, the border restrictions did a pretty good job of sort of delineating between the movement of goods and the movement of people. We had that essential category and the non-essential category. But the challenge is you the know, movement of goods is, is really done by people, not just by trucks. And so to a certain degree, a lot of trade does depend on people and how well they can move. And what we saw was just a lot of gray area around what sort of work was essential so something i heard quite often was a business executive who might be trying to cross the border to do a site visit to sign a contract or or look at some property and because that site visit wasn't sort of part of the daily routine of that person's workload it wasn't considered essential the other challenge around that is that that determination wasn't made until that person was actually at the border you know in the process of of trying to do a business negotiation or some other type of work activity and so that's incredibly disruptive and i think a lot of issues or a lot of businesses face those issues around uh, manufacturing sites and signing contracts and really being able to maintain the trade that's that's been in the works from from contracts and negotiations that might have happened years in the past so i think the challenge now of sort of getting back to where we were before, is is that there's this kind of cloud of continued uncertainty. You know, these border restrictions, they were very popular in Canada for the most part, and they were also pretty popular in the United States, and they were popular both for the Trump administration and the Biden administration as a tool to control who was able to cross the border and sort of the size of those flows as well. And I, I think that that's probably a policy tool we're going to encounter again, because we all know we're gonna encounter some sort of global health crisis or or other type of global crisis again. So that added uncertainty is really a challenge and an impediment for cross-border trade relations, but also for local communities and businesses and economies that over the past, you know, post 9-11 years in particular, have really built up entire industries around a functioning border, because I don't think there was really a recognition that that border might not function, and particularly for as long as it did. I mean, really, we're talking about over a year of of people who had typically been able to cross not being able to cross, and depending on how you parse it, almost two years. So, you know, that question of whether or not, or or how do we get back to the sort of pre-COVID years, I think the answer is we don't. Um, I don't think we're going to get back to that type of border, and that's kind of what we faced after the 9-11 years, know, we've never gotten back to that time when you didn't need a passport to cross the Canada-US border, and it's hard for many of us to even imagine now that it used to be that way, uh, but these, these external shocks have long-term policy implications, and so I think where we're at on the border, you know, there's good and there's bad. I think to a certain extent, the border restrictions forced uh, particularly Public Safety Canada and CBSA to really innovate and to come up with new ways to collect the information that they've needed. And so, for example, CBSA now has the Arrive Can app, which has allowed them to collect information about travelers before they reach the border, so that when you reach the border, you're not at the first stage of providing all your information. You're sort of at the last stage. And that's been something that's been really desirable for for CBSA to be able to do. They've really kind of leapfrogged in their technology, and I think in a broader context that we're in, there is a heightened attention on making the border work better in in both directions, and that can be a really good thing that can provide funding and again really spur innovation on the border that could maybe be somewhat stagnant in off years. Now the challenge, as you highlighted, is um, the US and Canada have not been doing this collaboratively. You know, we, we did really well at the beginning of the border restrictions, incredibly swift and efficient in deciding what we wanted to do and executing it in a tandem fashion. But that was really sort of the extent of, of our collaboration and coming out of these restrictions, we see that Canada and the US are in very different positions on what sort of information they're requiring. And that has real implications for, for cross-border travel, and it really affects you know, the, the time it takes to cross the border, the cost it takes to cross the border, and I think has created a lot of friction. And the confusing thing for the average traveler, including you know people that are engaged in cross-border work travel, is that it's really hard to figure out what exactly you need to do to cross the border. And the more, again, uncertainty there is there, the harder it's going to be for people to cross. So, you know, we've seen those systems diverge. The extent to which we're able to potentially align them or make things interoperable, I think, is really the question as to if we can get back to at least a pre-COVID sense of cross-border mobility, even though that mobility will look different.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, yeah, and I want to I get into a little bit um, the, the binational border policy discussion and, and how I think you make a great point that there isn't necessarily a return to sort of pre-COVID normal. We've had a fundamental change here, um, but how can we manage the relationship more effectively with the United States going forward? So I, I definitely want to dig into that, but I want to bring Alan in. Um, because uh, you've got a lot of experience uh, on the front lines at at the most senior levels in the US government uh, managing the border. And so I I wanted to get your uh, perspective on lessons that we have learned over the past couple of years, or previously, post 9-11, other uh, border disruptions that have occurred, that could be applied to uh, what, you know, hopefully will be a renewed bi border management policy between Canada and the US. So over to you, Alan.
4: Yeah. Uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you, Brian. I, I, uh, I want to start off by uh, agreeing uh, with Eileen that uh, we really are in the midst of a perfect storm, everything from uh, labor shortages to uh, climate change and uh, everything she described in between. And I agree with uh, Laurie that uh, Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again that uh, the notion that we can recreate where we were is uh, an illusion that we should uh, dispense with uh, readily. Uh, That doesn't mean that we don't stand at a landmark moment. We are at a 9-11 moment, uh, and we have to take into account that, uh, A, this has been more catastrophic than 9-11. After, uh, when we compare, for example, uh, across North America, but specifically in the United States, There've been uh, more than a million deaths, that's 300 times uh, more than the the fatalities on uh, 9-11. And then with regard to the uh, interaction between uh, our countries, Canada and the United States, uh, we saw in the aftermath of 9-11, a reopening of the border within days, as opposed to a shutdown that lasted almost 20 months with regard to so-called non-essential traffic. So we are at a uh, crossroads. And uh, I, I think, though, as, as uh, the Chinese like to uh, remind us, a crisis presents an opportunity as much as a, a significant danger. And we are at a, a 9-11 moment. Uh, and the challenge will be, uh, first, that we actually uh, incorporate public health fully into the border security uh, management regime that uh, border management now has to recognize that, uh, in fact, contagious disease is among the greatest threats. We've been operating for almost 20 years now on the uh, theory that counterterrorism is the lens through which we should look at uh, cross-border mobility. That's no longer the case, although we shouldn't put terrorism to the side because non-state risks, including terrorists and other transnational criminals actually as we know, constitute a major threat. So what do we do, as, as Lenin famously said? What's to be done? Uh, it seems to me that uh, first we have to recognize that the tools that we developed after 9-11, uh, risk management, advanced information, targeting, trusted traveler and trader programs, they retain their value and they are and must remain a pillar in our border management regimes but they're gonna require a reorientation and an adaptation that so far, as Laurie pointed out, we have not shown the bilateral or by, let alone binational national capacity to, uh, to tackle. So let's take uh, passenger mobility. Uh, we operated in the counter-terrorist context actually quite successfully knocking on wood uh, in the sense that uh, advance information and then vetting passengers against watch lists including them on white lists, uh, banning them on no-fly lists, uh, and the like uh, actually did succeed. Uh, But the theory of action has to shift to recognize that in the contagious disease context, we're not looking for needles in a haystack anymore. In fact, we actually have to vet the entire haystack in the public health context. And frankly, we don't have the and haven't developed the capacity to, uh, to do that. We have to, in, in effect, uh, triage, be prepared to triage uh, passengers uh, and develop the tools and put the tools in the operator's toolbox that are necessary to do that. Everything from vaccination certificates uh, uh, to health passports, to uh, mass uh, immediate screening capacity and testing capacity. Uh, contact tracing and and all of the other uh, techniques have to be actually refined and placed into the border operator's uh, toolbox and uh, his or her uh, repertoire of inspection. We haven't moved very much forward on that. But I want to go back to a point you made, Brian, uh, that underlies this, that it, it's not uh, really uh, just passengers anymore. Uh, we we take satisfaction from the fact that uh, trade continued uh, after March of 2020. But in fact, the new set of challenges that uh, Eileen referenced uh, really affect cargo primarily. And I will go venture to say that, uh, in fact, we're going to see a slowdown and problems with regard to the movement of goods that uh, Will rival those that we've experienced with people, and what is that attributable to? It's really the reemergence of, of traditional uh, great power rivalries in the in the global geopolitical context. So whether we're talking about identifying goods uh, that are subject to Chinese to tariffs uh, on trade with China, or in fact now identifying the Russian oligarchs and the Russian companies that are subject uh, to sanctions because they've been placed on on massive sanction lists uh, across North America and the world, this is going to uh, challenge the traditional paradigm that we've had with regard to the movement of goods. We focused in both of our countries on the importer of record. And we have uh, insisted for security, counterterror security purposes, that importers know their suppliers. They have to identify who is actually sending them the goods that they're bringing across the borderline. Uh, that's no longer the case in this new uh, geopolitically complicated world, highlighted, of course, by the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, where in fact, uh, importers of record are going to have to know not just their suppliers, but their supplier suppliers. And there's going to have to be a, a, a revision of the opacity of the global supply chain so that not only first tier suppliers, but second tier, third tier suppliers actually are brought into uh, visibility. And it's fair to say that we are at the very threshold of developing the tools in the private sector, let alone in the public sector, to be able to deal with that. So l- let me uh, just talk about respond directly to your question about what are the uh, the uh, lessons that we've learned. Uh, First of all, I'd say that we have to recognize that uh, borders in North America deserve special attention rather than treatment as just another part of the international travel zone or the global supply chain. Uh, The closure of the so-called non-essential crosses has been devastating, as Laurie pointed out, to border communities, their families, and local economies. When we shut down cross-border travel for health reasons or for any other reason, Authorities need to start the process immediately of developing criteria and requirements for opening it up. Make a plan, even a bad plan, that can be improved as we go along. We can't do what we did, which is to lump family members, tourists, business people, irregular migrants and terrorists into one undifferentiated bundle and leave them to stew month after month. Don't let the best be the enemy of the good. Uh, we we should have opened up borders months ago for vaccinated travelers, uh, and we might have started with nexus members, for example. We might have created a, 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 an ESTA system that would have permitted this uh, border closure to end a lot sooner than it has, and it still hasn't ended, frankly, in, in, in many practical senses. The second lesson that I draw from our experience is that the radio silence from government to the public and the private sector regarding border management has been deafening. It's really been a disgrace bi-nationally, and we need to uh, recognize that if we're to move forward. The best solutions inevitably will be created with co-created with the private sector, and the trust and confidence of the community is essential. This requires better gathering of information, analysis, and dissemination of public health data, and a commitment to the issuance of regular and clear guidance. Again, the radio silence was deafening. Good faith, not perfection, and reasonable risk, rather than zero tolerance, should be the standards that govern cross-border mobility. Third, the necessary outreach and planning has to be coordinated between CBSA and CBP. It has to be done on a North American basis across the US, Canada, and Mexico. And it has to include local, state, provincial, and federal levels, not one or any of them. and certainly not all of them acting independently. For example, after our experience with the SARS and the H1N1 avian flu, North American public uh, health plans were drawn up in 2007, 2012, only to be ignored when push came to shove with COVID. We've learned that viruses are borderless and they must be confronted regionally. If we continue to act unilaterally in the way that Lori's, I think, accurately described, especially in the context of contagious disease, but also in terms of these, the reemergence of uh, geopolitical rivalries, we're gonna be clapping with one hand. We have to build a cooperative border management. It won't look like what it looked like after 9-11, but remember, again, after 9-11, the smart border accords were actually implemented quite, re- and, and, and the border was opened up relatively quickly that contrasts with where we are. So I'm not a great one for focusing on, uh, on failure, although we have to really understand what went wrong in this context. Uh, in many ways, the review process should involve a bilateral, perhaps a trilateral, 9-11 commission report. Uh, as I said, 9-11, is terrible as it was, pales in comparison to the catastrophe this has visited on on people, uh, the society, and the economy. We have to continue to look these lessons and and look them in the eye and recognize that it's been a disaster and that we can't permit it to happen again. You know, A. J. P. Taylor, the British historian, recognized that when you reach a turning point, if you don't turn, you're left behind. That's not really what the future of North America is about. And I think this is a great opportunity to actually seize the moment, but it's gonna require different institutional arrangements. We can't have border blockades without having US and Canadian authorities in close cooperation. And this can't be just on a crisis basis. We have to institutionalize and create ongoing working committees that are actually planning for the new future that we are thrust into. So I'm, uh, I'm actually hopeful when you look at what uh, Canada and the United States uh, have done together, whether it's in the context of security or in the context of uh, trade facilitation, uh, we have a good track record. But the challenges we face now uh, really are going to put this cooperation really a test, and I trust we're up to it.
1: Thank you, Alan. That, that's a that's a great uh, list of lessons learned and actions that we should be taking going forward. So I, I have a follow-up question, and anyone can jump in on this. But you mentioned, um, you know, the ongoing um, uh, great power uh, rivalry that we're witnessing, and and effectively the the return to regionalization uh, in the world. Does that create an opportunity to kind of revitalize the North American uh, trade zone. We have the new agreement, the USMCA-KUSMA. Um, it seems to me like there'd be an opportunity um, for Canada and Mexico to be engaging the U.S. and really focusing on the North American context in, in terms of, of border management in particular. Um, how, how do we do that? And is there an appetite for that in Washington to have that discussion? Or is it very much uh, an America-focused discussion? Because I, I, it seems to me that there's an opportunity.
4: So let me take a quick crack at that. I, I, I think you're right. The American century is clearly coming to an end, but the question is whether or not the North American century is just beginning, given all of the competitive advantages that we have in this region, from 500 million people to uh, 17% of uh, world trade. Uh, it's it, it, The staggering advantages of of, of water, uh, energy resources and the like. Can we actually bring these to bear in in the new multipolar uh, geopolitical situation that's uh, that's uh, arising? Uh, the answer is yes, but you you raise a good question. So after after uh, Donald Trump came into office, declaring NAFTA the worst trade deal that had ever been reached, uh, you know, with the help of uh, Robert Lighthizer, he actually negotiated a reasonably good follow-up to NAFTA. Uh, but it wasn't uh, nearly enough. So I take your point. And I hope that policymakers in, in uh, Ottawa and in Mexico City and in the United States understand that we can improve on the USMCA, uh, you know, this, this trade deal that doesn't mention North America, and this trade deal that each country has given its own name to. We can do better than that. And in fact, uh, you know, I think the The convening by the Biden administration of the North American Leadership uh, Summit in, in its early days is a good sign, but look what's happened even there. There is no institutional capacity to follow up on it. We don't have the kind of attention in the Privy Council or in Los Pinos or in the National Security Council in the United States that will actually build this agenda. So the short answer is yes, that's where we should be going but it's gonna require a lot of leadership that uh, is focused on many other uh, challenges today, Brian.
1: Thank you. Eileen, I wanna follow up on something that Alan raised and get your perspective. Um, And this is the the transparency in supply chains. I think it's a really important point. And you're seeing this uh, across industries now, trying to uh, ensure that there's more transparency into the supply chain at every tier um, and effectively have, you know, almost an early warning system so that there's more uh, there, there's more ability to identify potential shortages or challenges at an earlier date and then put in place uh, plans uh, to avoid any impacts. How does UPS manage supply chain transparency? And is this something that you're seeing a lot of work going into and, and, and asked from your clients in terms of how the supply chain is viewed and, and how much visibility you have into it?
2: well it's a great question uh, yes i think something that we are definitely we've been seeing over you know recent months and recent years is more near shoring uh, being conducted by our customers as they not necessarily attain to uh, aim to kind of reshore entirely but they do try where possible to make their supply chain slightly shorter uh, to make that a bit more manageable we're also seeing a lot more focus from our customer base on warehousing, um, moving from what we call a just-in-time model to a just-in-case model uh, with a, a bit more active and engaged thinking about warehousing and what needs to be uh, kept closer to hand uh, in case of unexpected situations. Uh, to Alan's point on, uh, on supply chain transparency, I, it's a very interesting one. And maybe I can kind of gather my, I had a few, I was jotting down a few thoughts as, Laurie, uh, as both Laurie and Alan were speaking. And I can maybe uh, share it in, in this way. On the previous panel, uh, Sarah Gold, Goldfeder mentioned uh, creating a space for strategic thinking, uh, which I really liked. Uh, I think that that captures exactly what we need from a North American uh, supply chain perspective, given everything that we have all uh, witnessed and, and the challenges that lie ahead. Alan, thank you for mentioning sustainability. That's an important one uh, that we must not forget in this context too. Um, I think that we won't be short of agenda items to discuss if we're able to create that strategic space. Supply chain transparency is one, thinking about how how to leverage new technologies, the one that comes to mind, uh, Alan is probably far more expert on this than I am, but certainly blockchain and the potential applications of technologies like blockchain uh, to enable a greater and more dynamic uh, supply chain visibility and transparency. Laurie, you mentioned for the movement of people, you talked about ARRIVE CAN, uh, and that got me thinking about, uh, you know, on the movement of goods side, uh, you mentioned the benefit of ARRIVE CAN is that you kind of reach that final stage of giving information over to the border authorities before you land in Canada. Uh, on the on the good side we're also seeing uh, that kind of thinking when you think about pre clearance um, and pre screening uh, that cbsa are actively engaged in and that ups has been a long time uh, supporter of uh, those are all initiatives that will require you know whether it's us canada or north american perhaps even broader uh, collaboration and i think it would be a missed opportunity uh, if we didn't carve out some space for uh, a debrief between, you know, public, uh, public policy uh, leaders and the key stakeholders who have had a lot of boots on the ground experience over the last couple of years with uh, with what hasn't gone so well uh, and the challenges that we've all faced with the moving target nature of uh, those operational continuity challenges that I spoke to before. So a somewhat convoluted answer there, but those were all of the, the, the things that I was jotting down as I listened to uh, our previous speakers.
1: Great, thank you, Eileen, and uh, Laurie. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to you. A couple of things. First, I I just appreciate your reaction uh, to what you've heard from uh, from Alan and, and Eileen with respect to um, uh, the, some of the lessons learned, but also what what we can do to engage uh, and and a North American approach to border management going forward. I also wanted to just get a little bit more of your perspective on the technology side of things. I think it's really interesting that you raised the Arrive Can app as an example of something that, you know, a technology solution that moved at, you know, absolutely record speed for, for a government context to come up with a solution like that, implement it uh, and have it force. Do you think going forward, um, that's going to uh, basically create a, the tone for these new types of innovations and new types of uh, border screening processes that, that we can apply and, and make sure that we're addressing all of the health and security concerns, but doing it in a way that makes the, the movement at the border efficient? Or was this just a one-off? It was a response to a crisis and it's kind of back to regularly scheduled programming. So uh, over to you.
3: Well, thanks, Brian. And I absolutely agree 100% with everything that Eileen and, and Alan have said, and maybe I, I don't know if I can add to it, but I could distill it. And I think, you know, there's a couple key ingredients in this sort of bilat- need for a bilateral framework and better coordination going forward. One is, as Alan highlighted, it shouldn't be sort of a one-off in response to what's happening in the moment. It needs to be ongoing. It needs to be institutionalized. And as Eileen pointed out, you know, we need to include stakeholders across the board. And I guess what I sort of add to the conversation is the people on the ground and the communities who live with the border every day are really key stakeholders that often get overlooked. And that's not just you know, businesses or community members, it's also the practitioners and the the line officers themselves who, who see what's working and not working. And I can say that we've had a, a number of those instances where I work in BC, Washington region, where the line officer will say, well, yeah, it doesn't make sense that when you fill out your arrive can, you can't include going back home as your quarantine plan if you're driving into Canada from, you know, 10 kilometers across the border. So working out some of those kinks and improving those policies should really include multi scaled sort of connections between what I think of as the top levels of government who are making the decisions and also the people who are really navigating the realities of those policies and face those unintended unintended consequences. And I think can probably, um, sort of anticipate them and really improve policy as well and so your second question is is a to me a fascinating one because it's it's what I look at all the time is is arrive can are these sort of new policy shifts here to stay and I think I, I sort of mentioned this briefly but arrive can was an incredible solution for the land border because if you think about it when you're when you're flying in the air mode governments and airlines know, pretty much everything about you before you get on the plane. They know your name, they know your passport number, they know all that information. So they can do a lot of that pre-vetting and it's been an incredible tool for both Canada and the US. But the land border has always been a struggle because that pre-arrival information didn't exist. You have millions and millions of people showing up to the border. You have no idea who they're going to be or what their intentions might be. And so I think ARRIVE CAN is absolutely here to stay. I think. Um, certainly it needs to be refined and it needs to be um, connected to better education and outreach than it is. You know, right now you have a lot of travelers who show up at the border who have no idea what Arrive Can is. They've never heard of it. Maybe they don't have smartphones. Um, We have a long way to go before that system is, I think, a good one and a functional one and an efficient one. but, But I do think it's here to stay. And the question is, is the U.S. going to reciprocate that sort of um, policy approach. They haven't so far. Any of you who have driven over the border from Canada in the last few months know that you just show up and you sort of say, yeah, I'm vaccinated. And, and maybe somebody asks you for your, for your record and, and maybe they don't. So it's a totally different approach than the Canadian one. And you know, the, the important point of that is if the US does decide to develop one, or if Canada does decide to sort of modify arrive can to improve it and, and make it much more functional when when people really start moving across the border again are we going to do that in a similar way or are we going to have two totally different systems where travelers are entering all that information in two different places two different times um, and that's really going to have a huge impact on the fluidity and the connectedness between our countries
1: Great, thank you, Alan. Did you want to uh, add in on that? I saw you had your hand up
4: there. No, yeah. I just uh, in in listening to uh, to Lori. I I uh, I agree that uh, you know this kind of information technology and traffic segmentation uh, at the land border, which would mirror what we do in the in the maritime and aviation context is 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 due. But here here's where I differ a little bit, Lori. This isn't going to be done by government. I I think we're in the midst of a of such a massive transformation, and given the challenges that Eileen pointed out so well, uh, this has got to be co-created with the private sector. This has got to be a series of of things that mirror what happened, and UPS was at the forefront of this after the Yemen cargo plot in 2011, 2010. the, the uh, air cargo uh, express carriers created the uh, air cargo advanced screening. This basically was a system not imposed by the government on, on the private sector, but rather one that was developed in tandem with the private sector. We now need to shift that, and, and all of this innovation has got to be uh, uh, generated by the private sector, but then you have the problem of receptivity by the public sector. And that's something we need to work with our political leaders on. And then the, the, uh, the second point though, is this is, and this is the opportunity inherent in the current moment. We need to be moving toward a pre-clearance, uh, a regime, not just in the way that we've done it in the past, but one that would actually recognize that most Shipments of goods, as most crossings of people, are repetitive. This is, these these are not uh, things that happen. Uh, uh, you know, the the exception uh, is not the rule. The rule is that most people who cross the border cross it all the time. Uh, the The same lesson on cargo: cargo is is repetitive. And what we have to do is start to enlist time and space more effectively so that we're segmenting the traffic, but also we're pre-clearing people and goods in the manner of arrive cam, but also in the context of cargo from the time it leaves the factory floor to the time it gets onto the importer's shipping dock, uh, we we need to have this pre-cleared so that border agents and, and their agencies can focus on the exception, not the rule. And that's the way we actually start moving toward a regime in which the haystack is vetted. And we create the trusted networks, not only between regulators, but also between regulators and the private sector that permits a much more seamless cross border mobility for both people and goods.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it seems to me like now would be the time for a, uh uh reinvigorating the beyond the border initiative uh an institutionalized uh canada u.s uh uh initiative to to address some of these issues work on technology solutions and uh and uh achieve some of these outcomes now we've only got five minutes left so i do want to just bring in uh, a question uh related to the ukraine i I mentioned it uh, at the start but i just wanted to get your perspectives um, on uh, what, what are the implications of uh, the conflict? Now we, we've seen unprecedented sanctions rolled out, uh, no-fly zones uh, being put in place. What does this mean for global supply chains and border management? And there was one audience question uh, directed at you, Eileen, specifically on, on on the from a UPS perspective, what do no fly zones do to your your shipping uh, capabilities uh, from an air freight perspective? So a broad question, but um, would, would appreciate uh, the views from all the panelists on on how you see this uh, playing out and what it will ultimately mean for global trade. Um, Eileen, you want to start, and then
2: sure, um, I can I can begin. So, well, first and foremost. It, for the situation in Ukraine, UPS has operations and employees in Ukraine. So um, the the first thing that we've been doing is making daily contact with those individuals to to make sure that they're accounted for and to provide support to those individuals and their families uh, where we can. From an operational perspective, uh, we have suspended service into, out of, and within uh, both Ukraine and Russia, as well as into and out of Belarus at this time, so uh, so clearly some very direct and immediate operational consequences uh, for the for the movement of goods in that region. Um, that will be a dynamic situation and something that our organisation is evaluating uh, on a on a daily basis. The um, third is that the uh, humanitarian assistance arm of UPS, the UPS Foundation has mobilized uh, to provide on the ground support in the surrounding region as we see an influx uh, of of, of people who who require support uh, in Europe and and likely elsewhere too. Um, So I suppose that that's what we're doing in the the short term. Uh, In the longer term, I took a note in the very first presentation um, by uh, Marie-France Paquette, Uh, she she mentioned energy prices and overall inflation. And certainly uh, in the medium and longer term, when we think about our own network planning, uh, those kinds of uh, broader economic uh, uh, and and energy dynamics are certainly likely to impact impact trade flows. And so that's something that we will also be keeping keeping a careful eye on as an organization.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, Laurie, over to you.
3: I'll just say briefly, you know, that certainly the continued uncertainty is, is a challenge. And I think for the Canada-U.S. relationship, um, I hope we, we continue to be aligned on our response and our thinking, and perhaps that unites us and particularly our leaders. And from a trade perspective, you know, Canada and the U.S., um, I think the U.S. biggest import from Canada is mineral fuels, so unrefined oil and gas. And so um, that could certainly impact border and, and trade flows to the extent to which what Canada and the U.S. decide to do in terms of, of mineral oil imports um, could, could be something to watch.
4: Yeah, just briefly, Brian, if uh, if the uh, reaction of uh, a unified North America and, and uh, EU doesn't uh, lead to the uh, removal, removal of Putin uh, by uh, powers within the Kremlin, this is gonna be an issue a lot more serious than supply chains. Uh, you know, obviously the, uh, the if, if, if it uh, persists, uh, Russia uh, could well, notwithstanding its scale, uh, be converted into a North Korea uh, pariah in the uh, global uh, supply chain system, which will have a massive uh, economic and uh, impact on the Russian people, obviously, but also on on, uh, on the world economy. But, you know, I'm, I'm just tempted to end that this is a lot more important than global supply chains. This is a defining moment. Uh, it's it's a Cuban a Cuban missile crisis, in my mind that will def- define uh, the international order over the next twenty years. So we've got to get this right, and he's got to be stopped.
1: Well said, yep. I think supply chains may be uh, are, are one of our more minor concerns in the context of this conflict if it spirals out of control. Um, well, thank you. Um, uh, excellent conversation. We covered a lot there in forty five minutes. Uh, a lot to unpack, um, but clearly this is a topic that's not going away. Um, and you know, I, I am left optimistic, um, at least from a North American perspective, that there is an opportunity here for Canada, Mexico, the US to, to engage uh, on uh, border policy. And we've seen now that we can uh, put together um, effective app- apps like Arrive Can and other technology solutions uh, in a crisis. And, and hopefully going forward, we'll see the introduction and to your point, Alan, working with the private sector uh, to ultimately make borders more efficient um, uh, going forward. So, with that, thank you so much. Uh, please join me in thanking our speakers. Uh, really excellent discussion here this morning.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode, one in a series taped at the annual State of Canadian Trade Conference, hosted virtually in March 2022. Remember, you can find the podcast on iTunes or wherever else podcasts are found. If you like the show, please remember to give us a rating. It really helps the podcast grow. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange.